Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. This week there is no Ian McCourt. We've lost him. He's gone. But uh, enough with the drama. It's just getting married. Uh, after all, it's happening very, very soon. And we're all quite happy for him, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but while the man is away, I'm taking over. Uh, I'm Andrea Gonçalves and I'm going to be your host for today. Sitting right in front of me, two gentlemen ready to tackle every matter about football. Louis Ambrose from the Hello. Football Newsroom. Good morning. And our very special guest today from the Do from Deutsche Welle, Holy Moody. Hello. Uh, before we kick off, we should we should warn people the usual warning. I would say, uh, wherever you you are, please go to your local iTunes store, give us a juicy rating, and leave a comment to let us know what you think of the podcast. It would be much appreciated. Um, folks, fair to say we enjoyed two very interesting tactical battles in this first leg of the Champions League. Um, starting with yesterday's match that ended with the Juve beating Monaco 2-0, it is amazing how tactically competent Juventus are. They switched from four in the back to three and uh, consistency still there. Yeah, they've played three at the back a couple of times in the Champions League this season, but obviously it was a switch still from what they played against Barcelona. And I think when you've got a back three With that level of experience, uh, Chiellini, Bonucci, Basali, and Buffon behind them, of course. And then you've got two wing-backs of that quality in Sandro and, of course, Dani Alves, who I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about. Um, you can see how the tactical switch can be made. It's, it's such an experienced team at Juve. Um, but yeah, the way Allegri has got them drilled into their roles, whether they're playing four at the back or three at the back, it's it's stunning to watch. They're so slick. And... Uh... The, 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 the roles of uh, Alexandro and Dani Alves yesterday were particularly incredible. They, they managed to shut down completely uh, Bernardo on the right and um, Lamar on the left. And also, they participated quite well in the offensive process. I mean, Dani Alves, two assists and uh, a perfect, absolutely perfect match. Yeah, it w I guess there was a benefit for them that Mendy was out for Monaco, which kind of mess with the fullbacks a bit going forward so much uh, but yeah they've been playing 4-2-3-1 all season they switched to this system well not all season but the last few months they switched to this system and then Dani Alves particularly but also Alexandra they're playing as left wingers or right winger and a conservative fullbacks at the same time the energy the drive especially Especially Danny Alves at 33 years old, I think. Yeah. Now, it's absolutely unbelievable to play a game on that level with that amount of energy. Imagine the amount of work you need to, to, to do on, uh, on, on training every single day. You know, it's actually... To, to adapt to everything, basically. It's Danny Alves' 34th birthday on Saturday. Wow. So, the guy really is Cafu reborn and possibly even better. The, the energy that he's got at his age is, is phenomenal. Um, I was talking on DW a couple of days ago about, or yesterday in fact, about um, Ronaldo, like how he still does it at 32. But he's done it largely by changing his style of play. Danny Alves is still bombing up and down the wing and working with like excellent concentration, excellent focus when he gets to the other end as well. I mean, that cross, obviously the back heel was great mm -hmm. for the first goal. The cross uh, is just a bit, a bit hopeful. The cross was just glorious though. Yeah. It was spot on. It was pinpoint. Is he the best fullback of the last 10 years? Easily. 
maybe maybe more than 10 years ago. Probably still the best right back in the world. Yeah. And as everybody was saying on Twitter and so forth yesterday, what were Barcelona thinking? It was completely, <laughs> completely insane. I, we, we talk about uh, our Barcelona were kind of dismantling all the, the the project in the last, I would say, five years or something like that. But Dani Alves, the number of assists he was providing every single season, he's just one of those guys that you, you shouldn't let go. Well, especially without a contingency plan. I mean, they let him go and then ended up without a right shifting back. centre midfielder Sergio exactly. Roberto to right back so it's not even like they let him go because there's some wonder kid coming through the the academy or something like they let him go and didn't have a right back absolutely insane yeah it was a, one of those uh, moments that you feel like there there, there was no plan and yeah. how can it uh, such a big club like Barcelona yeah. it reminds me a bit of when um, Milan let Pirlo go and again Juve were the ones that picked him up then and proved that it was a completely stupid decision they've done the same thing with Alves here um, and he's slotted in so well. You can see he's not just a, a workhorse. He's not just a good footballer. He's really tactically astute as well. And that's one of the reasons why he's fitted into this Juve team and why he can play in different formations um, for Juve and always do uh, an excellent job. Um, I think he is one of the best players that we've seen outright in the last 10 years, let alone fullback. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the the keys to the match yesterday... Um, it was the the something that we talked before is that how fast uh, Monaco are in possession and without the ball also the the way they they change pace yesterday they didn't they couldn't exactly they couldn't they tried there were even moments in the first 15 20 minutes like just simple things like the ball was going out for a throat and players were busting a gut to get over to it as quickly as possible they didn't want Juventus to rest or grapple the game from them uh, but Juventus are way too good. And Monaco, they had a few half-decent chances in the first half. It needs to be remembered. It wasn't a straightforward 2-0. And Mbappe, with his incredible movement, forged himself a couple of chances from nothing. And the, Buffon, the, the, the finishing with the left foot is just perfect. Yeah, but Buffon made a couple of saves. and He was really good yesterday. He was, again, another guy right at the end of his career who's playing almost like he's never played before. He's still at the peak of his a, powers. A fun fact about uh, Buffon and Mbappe. When, when um, Mbappe was born, Buffon already played a World Cup in '98. <laughs> I think that kind of um, I think that kind of sums up part of the problem for Monaco, or a big part of the problem for Monaco yesterday. Um, and I think them not finishing off the chances that they created with Juventus being totally ruthless at the other end partly comes down to that experience and that game intelligence that Juve have developed over the years. If you look at the average age of the players in the starting lineups yesterday, Juve's was just under 30.5. Monaco's was just over 25. So you've got an average of five years difference there. And Monaco also had seven players under the age of 25 in their starting lineup, compared to Juve, who I think their youngest player was Dybala at 23. They had a load of guys, obviously we already mentioned the defenders, but a few more who were 30-plus. And it, it did look like men against boys at times. That's not to say that Monaco were poor. I don't think they were. And they, they did create chances, as we said. But Juve just looked like they were showing them how it was done. Yeah, they were just a class above, I think. They, and they took their chances, which is ultimately was the main difference between the two sides on another day it may not have happened uh, but it did and we can pretty much safely call the tie over Juventus with two away goals going back to Turin um, uh, but we need to we need to give huge credit and admiration to Monaco who have had an unbelievable season another 
thing they still have the league on championship to fight for they after PSG lost yeah I think they're gonna the weekend they're gonna make they, it they're they gonna win it really are the favorites now to win the league incredible work from uh, Leonardo Jardim yeah absolutely amazing uh one last thing I would like to mention was the the sacrifice of Manzukic in the last 15 20 20 minutes more or less it was playing almost as a fullback <laughs> when uh, there was that that moment that uh, Moutinho came in and it was the 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 way Monaco was playing changed a bit. It was more about long balls and uh, looking uh, for the, the, the to make some crosses. And he, he came down and he closed down brilliantly. And I, I wasn't expecting someone like Mandzukic doing this move in his career. Never. Yeah, I mean, he played wide a bit in Germany when he was younger, but he was younger then. Yeah. We've seen for years now that Mandzukic gives everything he's a pretty divisive figure and then when you have a team with Dybala and Higuain and Pjanic you you sort of almost look at the 11 and you like Mandzukic doesn't fit in you're like why is he there but you see playing on the left wing when they play four at the back and then playing up front last night and coming back to the flanks when he had to like you say the, the end of the game you see why Mandzukic is there because he gives everything he's a calm head unbelievably he helps keep the ball but he just fights he, Juventus are suddenly even harder to break down before you even reach the the three center backs uh now um let's go and talk about the other match that happened a certain derby madrileño that ended with a three nil went to the the merengues um it looks like it's pretty much done yeah it's over it, Simeone's Atleti can do a lot of things but they can't win 3-0, I don't think. They, they were schooled, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We, we got to admit that. Absolutely. Zidane, who many of us, I think, it, almost everyone has questioned where, what Zidane does. Zidane is blessed with this squad and he puts them on the pitch and they win. Uh, you know, they usually with a late goal. Uh, but this was nothing like that. He changed the formation. He had Modric and Kroos wider than you'd usually expect them to be in center midfield and suddenly Atleti had no idea how to get access to the ball they had no idea how to press them they didn't know how to cover any of the spaces that they were occupying uh, and how important was Isco's role on this well yeah so so you take Modric and Cruz and you have them a bit wider and a bit deeper alongside Casemiro and someone has to occupy the space in front of them and behind Benzema And Isco just floated around behind Ronaldo, behind Benzema, that is and a- picked up pockets of space. And Atleti, we know, we all know they played with two centre midfielders. Suddenly they had three centre midfielders to mark and Isco buzzing in behind them, and they had no chance. That is exactly the, the, the place where Isco should be. Yeah. Like uh, a... A guy who can actually do whatever he wants. It was it was like um, I don't know about the level, but it was like watching a really great David Silva performance, exactly something like that. And it's Isco is looks like he's going to stay at Real Madrid now. And that was a performance really putting his stamp on a huge game and saying, "Well, pick me." He has been doing that for a while now. But in, in, in a game this big, in the last big, two months, it has been incredible. Yeah. That goal against Alaves. Uh, amazing, well, incredible. I, I'm a bit biased about Isco because I really like the guy since he, he, came, he came up 
um, in the um, Valencia Academy, and then yeah. he was transferred to that uh, millionaire Malaga. Mm. There was millionaire for a while, just just that. Um, <laughs> and I, I really like him. He looks like a, a player from another era. He looks like someone from from the seventies or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the good and the bad still there, but but uh, it is incredible. Perhaps the best thing you could say about his performance was that he, not on his own, but a large part of it was down to him. He made a very tight and disciplined Atletico team look incredibly open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was working um, for the game and one of the guys in the office was saying, I think Simeone's going to get his tactics spot on tonight. <laughs> and within about five minutes of kickoff, you could see that actually it was Real Madrid who were bossing the game. They were the more organised team. Astonishingly, if you've watched some of Real's other performances this season, um, which is obviously to Zidane's great credit, uh, but also to, I think that midfield four, it, you know, Isco did a lot, but it, Modric and Cross, the the way those guys run the game is fantastic. And Casemiro did a great job as well. I'm not always his biggest fan, if I'm being honest, but uh, he set up the first goal, I believe, um, and just generally did his job very well. Uh, a- and, and credit to the fullbacks again, yep. because if you're going to play with these four tightly knit central midfielders, kind of Isco especially, just going where he wants then the width has to come from somewhere. You have to stretch a team like Atleti as much as you can. And we talk about Dani Alves. Marcelo is easily the best left-back in the world. He might be one of the best players in the world right now. He's probably Real Madrid's best player this season. And he was fantastic in the quarterfinal. And again, he was absolutely brilliant. We talked many times um, about this, Madrid, how inconsistent they look sometimes because they kind of lose focus on some moments of the match. But um, it looks like when they really need to be focused, they can do it. Yeah, it's like they save up their concentration for the big games, you know. Um, I mean, I I saw them recently, and uh, I think me and Nick uh, McKenna-Klein were talking about this on a pod recently. Um, They look totally unfocused. They look like they're just 11 players thrown out onto a pitch for some of the smaller games that they play, smaller games in inverted commas. but yeah, last night was a totally different story. It, it's it really is like they're saving up that sort of you know mental strength and that focus for the games where they really need it. And it, you know, the performance against Atleti was a masterclass. Do you think that uh, this is this is going to be uh, a tough question to to answer? Do you think that Madrid are a tougher team to beat without Bale? <laughs> yeah, I, we've spoken about this a bit off air and. With Bale, you do sometimes, you just get the sense that Zidane feels the need or the pressure to squeeze everyone into that team. And it's not about how the team is set up anymore. It's about making sure Bale and Benzema and Ronaldo are all on the pitch. It's not a new thing with Real Madrid, is it? <laughs> yeah, we've, <laughs> we've definitely seen that before. Since we've definitely seen it before. They just expect that the, the individual quality will define... Yeah, exactly. And I think in many ways it still does. The individual quality still does win it for Madrid. But it's better to have a system and the individual quality, not just the quality and maybe sacrifice a bit of a system for that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Bale in the summer or indeed next season. Now, if Isco is going to have a key role in this team, which it looks like he's fighting for incredibly hard you can't drop Ronaldo still and you can't really move Benzema yeah. so 
Well, you know, and if you did move Benzema, Morata would be the guy to come in. So where Bale fits in right now is an interesting question. They have a very strong bench with Morata, Vasquez, Asensio. It's a lot of quality. Um, what about the good old guy, Ronaldo? <laughs> Actually, that's another thing. Uh, <laughs> last time I was here with Oli, we spoke about off air with you. Exactly. Uh, saying Ronaldo doesn't do anything anymore but score. He just, he just um, scores, but, that's, but he does that pretty well. It's still a pretty important thing to be able to do. Yeah, it's, his it's, sense of timing. It's, it's incredible. His adaptation to this new rule, mm-hmm. I was really skeptic about it because um, in the beginning of his career, it was impossible to, to spot on that guy a striker. Well, and Ancelotti tried to play him there as well, and it just didn't work. He was, no, I can't play there. I'm, I'm they're, they're, they've been trying that in the, in the national team for years and years, and it didn't work. And uh, finally, in the, the last Euros, it worked for the first time in many, many years. Um, that physical decline kind of forcing him to realize perhaps where he's lost half a yard of pace? His ability like to, to adapt to new circumstances, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, yeah, it's amazing when it's you look amazing. at the early days of Ronaldo and the, the sort of tricky winger <laughs> show pony that he was um, at Sporting and then in the early uh, days at Manchester United as well. Um, when you look at the player that he is now, it's really hard to see how they're the same person, even with the time distance. Between. Yeah, I, I think one thing that doesn't get enough mention or certainly enough credit is how he's learned things that I actually am pretty sceptical that you are able to learn. You, you see these players, these strikers, Miroslav Klose or Thomas Muller, their understanding of space is impeccable and they are constantly scoring tap-ins and it's not luck. They're in the right place at the right time. Aubameyang has been doing it for Dortmund yeah, now for most, a few years. Most of this, it's like it's a natural... Exactly. It's an instinct. Exactly. And even from the beginning of their careers, they're in those positions, maybe not as often and, and every, maybe not as scoring as often. And everyone said that in, you cannot learn instinct. Exactly. But when Ronaldo was 20, 21 years old, he was never near the six-yard box. And this is a skill, particularly not even at United when he was still very strong, very quick, but could run all day long. This is something that he seems to have learned during his time in Madrid about reading the game, being in the right spaces, arriving in the box at the right times. And I I don't I can't think of another example of a player who's actually learned to do that as they've got into their late twenties or their thirties. Like that's something that players have or they don't. I, and I think that's incredible that he has learned how to do that. It's another uh, example of how hardworking he yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and uh, what about Zidane? Do you think he's a top manager or he's just a lucky bastard? I think it's kind of hard. To, <laughs> I think it's kind of hard to judge a manager who's got this kind of talent at his disposal. Um, and as I was saying before, you watch certain Real Madrid games, and you think that Zidane hasn't got a clue. He's not, you know pushing the team in any kind of direction or whatever but and and of course they lost a Clasico recently at home as well so let's not pretend that this one game against Atleti means that he's a he's a genius I think he's still got a lot to prove as a as a coach but um, I think he has proved already that there's more than some people were giving him credit for there he has he is tactically astute he can put out a team to beat someone like Simeone who is obviously known for that kind of um, yeah tactical nous and what have you? There was a moment in the game um, in the in the second half where Griezmann lost the ball. I think it was Asensio robbed him and just legged it up the pitch. And Griezmann tracked him back and tracked him back and eventually won the ball back, but right outside his own area. And I thought Zidane is going to be watching that and rubbing his hands with glee. He doesn't care that he's <laughs> lost the ball. The fact is that Antoine Griezmann 
Atleti's most dangerous attacking player is running half the length of the pitch to win the ball back in his own box. That's where he wants him. You know, yeah. so Zidane, I think, um, has earned some credit, but let's not go overboard <laughs> with it and call him a genius just yet. Yeah, I, I think it'll be the, the, the final. We assume what will be the final uh, will mm-hmm. be interesting. But again, it's it's just one game. And I think Zidane's definitely proven himself to some extent, whether or not we call him a world-class manager or anything like that. I don't know. He still has unbelievable talent to his disposal. But at the same time, there are some managers who are only good with being the underdog and wouldn't be able to take all of these world-class players and set them up in a way that gets results constantly. We know a lot of examples. Yeah, yeah, we know. We could name quite a few. Um, And at the same time, if you took Zidane out of Madrid and put him in the other dugout on Tuesday night, um, or not, not Tuesday's Atleti, who were awful, but... Atleti over the past two years then they wouldn't have got close I don't think to achieving what they have achieved so different styles and that kind of thing but yeah he's certainly on the way to proving himself I think he's quite clever he, he knows uh, where, what are the, the limitations of, of his own team and he plays, plays with that quite well mm-hmm. and uh, that, that is a quality uh, a big big quality if you're, if you're managing a team um, what about Atletico? It looks like the end of, a, of an era. Do you think there, there's a, some kind of a reboot around the corner? It's going to be tough with the new stadium. And we already know they owe a lot of money already for that. The thing about the stadium, uh, they reached an agreement with, um, with a municipality. So they're gonna, they, they found a way of not paying all the money <laughs> they should they pay right now. <laughs> so they might be um, still... Strong, I would say, in the, in the next uh, next years. We'll see how they spend money. They have to spend intelligently because they don't have the money of Real Madrid or Barcelona. So they're probably going to have to sell players to sign a lot of players for a big regrowth. They have a really strong set of young players, like Correa, Cranavita on loan at Sevilla. They have guys who can come into the team, Jimenez as well, who... It was injured. We, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It was uh, a big blow for, for, for anyone who could play right back was injured mm-hmm. yeah. the other night. Um, <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. So, but I think it's time for a regrowth. It'll be interesting how they do that if they decide to bite the bullet and sell Griezmann and or sell Koke and decide to do it that way. But the team is aging. Godin is not the defender he was. His acceleration is. It doesn't exist. It's really, really poor. Um, Gabby and Thiago are pretty much finished at this level. At, at this level, at Champions League semi-final level, you know they can still play La Liga matches most weeks, but to play against Real Madrid, you're not going to win with those two in midfield anymore. And yeah, I, it's time now to pass the torch to Seoul, to Koke and Jimenez and Oblak and see what the team can become. It's going to be interesting if it's with Simeone or not. I think it will stay. For one more year? For one more year. For one year in the new stadium and then... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I just don't know who they go to after Simeone. Yeah. It's such a... That's, that's the thing. Sort of uh, idiosyncratic kind of coach that I don't know where you go after that. Enough of Champions League for today. And uh, enough of Champions League for Arsenal, apparently. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> I'm really happy that we have two proud girls 
here to to talk and analyze the the present and the future of uh, of Arsenal. Um, they were once the kings of North London. Are they still the kings of North London? Yeah, sure. You can't have one <laughs> year out of what is it, twenty two, something yeah. like that, yeah. where the other team finishes above and say that's a power shift. You know, Tottenham have been talking for quite a long time about how they're going to finish above Arsenal. Um, for I mean, definitely since what two thousand six, where you had Lasagna Gate on the last day of the season, uh, where Arsenal leapfrogged Tottenham then to um, finish above them that year. Um, it feels like pretty much every year since then, Tottenham fans have been saying, "This is the year. This is the year. This is the year." The fact that it, I mean, you know, stop clocks right twice a day, right? And Tottenham fans are right once every 22 years. So, you know, I'd I'd say Arsenal are still the kings of North London from that point of view. But let's give them credit as well, as hard as that is for me to say. Um, They have had an exceptional season. I think Mauricio Pochettino is an absolutely brilliant coach. I think um, with the resources available to him, he's one of the best coaches in Europe. Um, And they fully deserve to be where they are, second in the table. Um, They've certainly, when you look at, City stumbling a little under Guardiola, uh, Mourinho not having the effect that Manchester United would have wanted, Arsenal completely uh, stumbling under uh, Wenger now. Um, Tottenham have been excellent this season and full credit to them. Yeah. What about Wenger? It's it's tough to talk about um, because there, know, Louis, if, if it was like there are so many moving <laughs> parts, you know, it's not black or white. It's not should Wenger stay or should Wenger leave? It's then how do you replace him? It's not just a coach coming in, but probably a director of football as well. You have to set all of that up in one summer, or would it be better to have a transitional period? Do you think that just one the one year is enough to prepare those changes in the structure? No, not at all. I, I, Arsene Wenger does everything football-related at the club. So if I were to say, you're not allowed to say that anymore because you get just hollered at um if i were to say i think arsene wenger should stay for one year for argument's sake like it's a transitional period yeah exactly um and i don't know if that would be better received by the fans i think so i think a lot of fans would be impatient and say well why does it need that but i think it would be better received by a lot of fans if they came out and announced a new contract and said this is one or two year contract but it is the final contract definitely 100 and the contract now is so that we are ready to move in because I don't think Arsenal are ready to move into a post-Wenger era. He's pretty much the director of football, the chief scout. It's pretty much the club. He, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely synonymous. It's impossible to separate the two now after so long. It's a unique think, situation. You think football. that Arsenal can uh, suffer the same problems that Man United absolutely. suffer after and, Ferguson? And losing Wenger would also be the problem that United had losing Ferguson and David Gill in the same summer because Wenger pretty much does both of their roles already. Yep. The issue is, is that going to be worse than continuing under Wenger? Because, um, you know, the argument throughout the sort of banter era, as it's called, um, was Champions League qualification every year proved that Wenger still had it and finishing above Tottenham every year proved that And exciting football. Yeah, exactly. developing young players, which doesn't seem to be happening anymore. There's none of that anymore. No, I mean, uh, some of the younger players, like Bellerin, for example, who has got exceptional talent, um, has not pushed on at all this year. So the player development thing, Iwobi's another example, who's completely overplayed in the first half of the season and then binned off after a couple of bad performances. Yeah, and Rob Holding played great in the semi-final at Wembley and has been dropped since then. It's seems i don't know i think maybe results wane and he wants to refer to the more experienced players but that's actually not just costing youth the chance but there's a lot of young talents that i think are being damaged by that i do think that the the squad is quite short 
I think this is probably the best squad Arsenal have had under Arsene Wenger. I, I think it's. I think in recent years, certainly. Yeah, anyone who points to that, it's probably a bit of a lazy excuse. I mean, you look at the back, and there's Murdasaka's back now, and but there's Koscielny, there's Mustafi. They spent a lot of money on Gabriel. Whether that was a good decision <laughs> or not is another thing. Holding there's looks there's very good, Holding, who's looked great in his limited appearances. Callum Chambers is out on loan. Bellerin. Gibbs and Montreal kind of battling for left back, and Montreal slipped a bit this year. Supposedly, um, Kolasinac. Yeah, and rumours that Kolasinac will mm-hmm. come in, and you move forward, and the midfield there's Shaka and Ramsey and El Nenny and Cochrane, and further forward, Wilshire out on loan. Yeah, you know. <laughs> the attacking midfield. There's we've already mentioned Awobi can't even get in the squad anymore. Giroud, Alexis, Walcott, Lucas Perez hasn't had a chance this season. Mm, that was weird. After the £17 but, yeah. million pound signing in the summer. It was a really weird situation. It's not just the money. He played well when he was given the chance. Yeah, and he, and he was effective. He scored style, goals. His style of assists. play uh, would yeah. fit perfectly Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just, you just quickly breeze through the squad there. There's a big squad. And actually, it might even be too big. We see, like, we mentioned the young players not getting a chance. It's because there are too many established players now. Yeah, I I was saying this to Lewis on the way over. Um, I find it really hard to analyse the performances of pretty much any Arsenal player at the moment because so many of them are underperforming that it's quite clearly not just the individual players that, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, Ozil hides in games. Shaka and Mustafi aren't good enough. Shiru's a donkey, blah, 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 blah. I find it really hard to say anything on any of them individually because it's quite clear to me that the coaching is the problem. Like, these guys aren't drilled into whatever system it is they're supposed to be playing. Um, And I think if you look at Tottenham or even Chelsea this season, I think the big difference is not the playing personnel. I think it's the coaching. Look at what Conte has done with Victor Moses or what Pochettino has done with Danny Rose. Like, no offence to either of those two players, but they're not world-class fullbacks or wingbacks. Um, and yet, Conte and Pochettino have got them playing like absolute world-beaters at the moment. There everybody, is... everybody at those two sides knows their roles, and their roles are specific, and their roles fit into a greater vision for the team. And we mentioned Zidane. It feels like with Arsenal, more than any other club in the world, 11 players are picked with four at the back or three at the back. And they're told what position they're playing in, and then they go out, they just go out onto the pitch. Granite Xhaka was signed for the second biggest fee in club history, thirty-four million pounds. Mm-hmm. Must have been one of the most expensive midfielders to move last summer. After a couple of fantastic years for Gladbach, he was captain of Gladbach at twenty-two, taking them into the Champions League. And then people say Arsenal don't have leaders, whatever that means. But here's a guy who was captaining one of Germany's biggest clubs at the age of 22 and got them into the Champions League. Arsenal signed him and Wenger called him a box-to-box midfielder in September. By November, he's calling him a deep-lying player. And if you watch Xhaka, and obviously myself and Oli watch the Bundesliga every week, Xhaka has not been played, after spending that much money on him, not been played in the role he played for Gladbach at any point this season. Yeah. Surely you paid thirty-four million based on his performances for Gladbach, so play him mm-hmm. like he was used there. And this is why I'm kind of skeptical about the formation change that Arsenal have had recently. It, it did seem to have some initial success to switch to a back three with wingbacks then, but if you're not drilling the players on these new roles that they're supposed to be playing in, then it's always just going to be a sticking plaster or even a, a complete shot in the dark. Like, let's see if this works. You know, this this seems to be what a couple of other teams are doing this season. Wenger yeah. is quite a reactive manager when it comes to tactics. And seems, working on a plan B when the, the season is pretty much over. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, he changes kind of things also. kind of when he absolutely needs to. 
Um, but it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of thought behind it. It's just like, oh, well, information we have been playing is not working. Let's try something else. And I still think, um, I don't think Arsenal have been building play particularly well um, under the new formation. And that, you know, Tottenham absolutely ripped us apart in that game. We didn't get near their goal for most of the match. Um, and Tottenham squandered a few open goals as well. It could have been far more than 2-0. And they showed exactly what the difference between the two clubs is at the moment. And now imagine that Wenger stays for the transitional period, as you said. And uh, what changes would you operate? You're going for the sporting director? Arsenal, they needed more than anything a sporting director. Not for the immediate future, but because one day, whether it's in one year or two years or ten years, because who the hell knows at this point, Arsene Wenger won't be the manager of Arsenal. And no manager in the world now does everything that he does at a big club. So Arsenal need a sporting director, not because they need one for to, to get deals done this summer, but because whoever the next manager is, and they have to be thinking about who the next manager is, will need one. So you would uh, hire a sporting director... Right now, yeah, it's, to work it's alongside to... alongside with Wenger for yeah. for a season, yeah, and then a uh, manager well, next season Who would be that guy. It it's tough to say. Because, Someone tactical, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, personally, my I don't know my way of going about this would be that if you look at tactics, you look at pressing or compactness, with uh, sort of probably the two big things in European football since Pep took that Barcelona team over and tactics kind of evolved or a, a new era was sort of came around again uh, and the two kind of buzzwords especially in Germany or the top teams in Spain like we spoke about Atleti it's the pressing and the compactness and Arsenal have no pressing or poor pressing usually and no compactness and no compactness <laughs> whatsoever uh, and I think those are probably the foundations you can build things on top of that but I think those are the foundations and for that reason I would like just for a few years, probably a, a kind of strict, almost defensive coach, like Allegri, like who knows if these guys are going to be available, but Allegri yeah. or Simeone or Hasenhutl, even a guy who is going to teach the basic principles of that to the players, the squad, and then maybe a, a more free guy to come in afterwards and then give the players a bit of freedom, a bit of attacking verve, like, I don't know. Are, are you, or something like that are in you the prepared, long term. Are you prepared to be um, for two, three years rebooting the club and yeah. not winning anything? And not being in the Champions League as well. I think yeah. like there are five other strong clubs in England now. I think that's... I do think in Arsenal's defence, that's one thing that's gone unmentioned. Arsenal are the only club the last... Said the last 20 years, but there have been five strong teams in England for almost a decade now, and Arsenal are the only ones to never not miss the Champions League. Um, and there, there is an amount of credit that's due for that. But obviously one day Arsenal were going to miss out and two clubs have to miss out. We have these six big clubs performing well, or five of them performing well maybe, or four, and then Arsenal <laughs> and Man United. It looks like they're the two that will miss out on Champions League football. Like two of those six clubs were not going to reach the Champions League this year and Arsenal one of them. But yeah, I think when a new manager comes in, it's hard to say because you can have an effect like Conte, maybe, or it can go the other way completely. The Moyes way. Uh, the Moyes yeah, way. I, and I think it's it, not a good way. It no. will come down to who Arsenal appoint more than anything. Yeah, I think that's it. In terms of a reboot, 
And, you know, if you do go through a few fallow years, if you can at least see some kind of development in the youth strategy or in what the team's doing on the pitch or even in the backroom, if you can see some kind of development there, you can put up with a few bad years. It's if you have a few bad years and you can't see where it's going to get better. Just to finish, um, Monchi announced yesterday in his uh, official presentation that Totti, uh, one of the biggest legends in modern football, is finally retiring. And uh, after 782 matches, 306 goals and 123 assists, he's saying goodbye to the beautiful game. Um, he's almost 41. It's, he spent 25 years playing um, in the first team of Roma. And I'm really sad that he's going. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, I think I, I was looking this up yesterday. Um, Totti is perhaps the ultimate one club player because... Whereas man, people talk about Philip Lahm at the moment with Bayern or Ryan Giggs back in the day with Manchester United. Those guys were winning things pretty much every year. You know, Messi is the same at Barcelona now, winning a couple of trophies a year. That's not necessarily commitment to the club. That's commitment to success. It's know? easy. Totti has won one league title and two Coppa Italias. Yeah. And he could have won so much more if he'd jumped ship, gone to Juve, even Milan or Inter, whatever. Real Madrid. Real Madrid, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he could have played in, uh, for a lot of different teams around Europe. He stayed at Roma and um, he has been the driving force of that team for so long, for as long as I can, or longer than I can remember. Was it 92 he started playing? Yeah, I would have been three at the time. So, um, yeah, he, you know, Francesco Totti pretty much outdates me. Um, yeah, absolute legend as far as I'm concerned and, and up there with Matt Letizia as well as my one club man. <laughs> I'm sure Totti will be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> Luminous It's a hell of a comparison. Um, that's all from us. Um, my thanks to Oli, uh, Lewis, and our producer Damon. Um, I hope you enjoy the ride. Have a great week. Bye.